Okay. Let's see if we can knock this out in one last hit. You ready? Get your brew on. And go, you good thing. At the end of episode 50, Mawson and Mertz, with Ninus, their best dogs and most of their food in a crevasse, were facing hard times. The start of the return journey saw the men in a mental funk. They allowed the sledge to race over crevassed descents with a lack of care born of ennui. They felt that each next crevasse might be the one that would kill them, and that that was, perhaps, for the best, as it would save them a lot of struggle and suffering. On the 15th of December, they reached the sledge discarded in better times. Mertz made tent poles of one of the sledge runners. When lashed carefully together with Mertz's skis and draped with the spare tent fly, held in place by blocks of snow, the small Erzatz tent served to keep the men safe from the weather. Mertz and Mawson faced a key decision at this point. They could attempt the descent to the sea over unknown ground under unknown sea ice conditions, adding to the distance they needed to cover, but gaining access to food in seal and penguin form. Or they could retrace their steps over known ground, but with no scope to add to their larder. They opted for the shorter overland trek on the hope that fair weather would allow them to make winter quarters with the food in hand on the sledge and carrying itself forward in dog form. The vegetarian Mertz, already breaking with his usual dietary mean by eating the meaty pemmican, felt even less enthusiastic about butchering and eating the animals he travelled with and cared for for 18 months, but couldn't do much about the situation as it lay. George, the laziest of the dogs, whom Mawson was threatening with the lash concurrent with his last sighting of the rearmost sledge, which showed Ninus cracking his own whip at his team, was killed and cut up. The dogs received their dog food raw, but Mawson and Mertz cooked theirs in pannikins made from the ammunition tin and ate it with spoons carved from the sacrificed sledge runner. Sledging at night to take advantage of lower temperatures and the consequent firmer, less sticky snow the party made reasonable progress in this early stage of the return journey, though the dogs, no great shakes at pulling in the first place, and now hampered by slim rations comprising their companion dogs, needed help on even gentle uphill grades. The time-consuming dance required to set up the makeshift tent meant Mawson and Mertz marched from breaking camp to setting up again without a proper rest stop or any form of refreshment. This harsh routine and the careful rationing of what food they carried put a lot of strain on their bodies. The dog, Johnson, and the men strapped him to the sledge in the hope that his spare frame might keep the others, now barely pulling against their traces, new life after the next camp, though none but Ginger could muster much strength even after this feed. After this, the dogs lost condition and their lives quickly, Mary being the next to ride the sledge. Haldane, grown so thin that his harness no longer fit, fell through a crevasse lid and slipped out of his tracery, Mawson barely catching the animal by the scruff of his neck before it fell to its death. His writing of this as a near miss in terms of food supplies rather than the dog's life indicates how mental frameworks shift in survival situations. And true enough, one by one the huskies went to the butcher's knife. With enough kerosene in hand to experiment a bit on the culinary front, Mawson and Mertz gradually became adept at cooking the various dog parts to their best benefit, making soup with the bones 
and stewing harder parts, such as pores, for long enough that they became soft and chewable. They didn't know that dog liver is rich with vitamin A to the point they were gradually poisoning themselves with what they thought were the choicest cuts of their canines. Mawson records that his dreams during this period, mirroring some of those experienced by the troglodytes of Inexpressible Island, ran to finding a confectioner's shop immediately outside the tent in the morning, and that after making extravagant purchases, he returned to the street having forgotten to collect his bounty, and that on reaching the shop door again, he found it locked up and a sign announcing early closing. I love my sweeties, and I'd find that heartbreaking even if I wasn't slowly starving to death and facing slim chances of making it back to safety. Without their full suite of gear, Mawson and Mertz fell prey to the high latitudes maladies that only good kit and meticulous care can prevent, snow blindness and frostbites. The latter not helped in that they weren't carrying much by way of insulating body fat after their long time on the march, the newly instituted austerity measures further hurting them on this front. On Christmas Eve, they threw away any equipment not associated with their immediate survival. Scientific instruments, the rifle, the camera and its associated plates were left behind. Somewhere in East Antarctica lies a cache of exposed negatives from this journey that I really hope comes to figurative light someday. After covering 11 miles, bringing them to within 160 miles of Cape Denison, they celebrated Christmas with an ounce each of the precious butter supply, making for an extra special dog stew at that camp. With a following wind, Mawson began experimenting with the tent fly and skis as a primitive sledge sail, but its power never compensated for their flagging strength, and every mile of progress came at a great cost of physical and mental exertion. With their meals now comprising primarily of dog with supplemental raisins, chocolate and pemmican, rather than the other way around, Ginger, the last of the huskies, went to her place in the pot on the 28th of December. On New Year's Eve, Mawson noted Mertz was not his usual, affable self, but couldn't place why this might be. Anyone other than someone with Mawson's experiences in the South might have assumed that it was the prospect of further marching on, with only the slimmest chance of surviving, having already lost a good friend and all their dogs to the landscape. But given subsequent events, it seems Mawson was astute in his assessment that something additional was wrong. Mertz suggested that dogmeat was not agreeing with him, and Mawson agreed to try switching to the regular sledging ration for a few days as an experiment. Mertz's condition deteriorated, with gut pains, weakness and frostbites, denting his ability to contribute to their progress, eventually consenting to ride on the sledge on downhill grades when the sail provided sufficient assistance. Both men noticed their skin cracking and falling away, sloughing from their bodies, sometimes in large swathes, each man taking a perfect cast of an earlobe from their companion with a kind of horrified wonder. The sloughing of their skin was the key evidence that led Sir John Cleland and R.V. Southcott to cite hypervitaminosis A as a result of eating dog livers as the cause of Mertz and Mawson's deteriorating condition in a 1969 paper submitted to the Medical Journal of Australia. In a 2005 paper to the same journal, Dr. Denise Carrington-Smith disputed this finding, concluding that the different conditions of the two men under the same circumstances indicated it was Mertz's shift away from a vegetarian diet that spoke most strongly to his demise, 
But either way, sloughing skin is sloughing skin, and a major nod that the vitamin problem was in play. No other starving Antarcticans experiencing this particular symptom to that extent, in equivalent circumstances, absent the dog liver aspect. Mertz began to experience delirium and fits, gradually becoming extremely defensive, concerned that Mawson was working against him. During a period of extended mania, he bit off one of his own fingers to prove to Mawson that he wasn't mad, which doesn't really work as evidence supporting that particular claim. From there, Mertz fell into muttering incoherence, alternating with stupor, then died in his sleeping bag on the 7th of January. Weak, alone, and facing a hard, possibly impossible slog back to safety, Mawson lay in his bag and weighed the pros and cons of staying put and dying next to his friend. He found inspiration in stirring British poetry, and the idea took hold that he should try to get as far as he could and cache their diaries somewhere that they might be discovered. He cut down the sledge to save weight, and moved on when the weather allowed. On the 11th, traversing a downhill section, Mawson thought his feet felt unusually lumpy. Stopping to examine them, he found the thick skin of the soles hanging off as complete, separate entities, the new skin beneath, tender and rubbed raw. The sloughing process hit him where he needed skin more than anywhere else. He slathered the new skin with lanolin and bandaged the soles back in place. Six pairs of socks, finesco and soft leather overshoes went over the bandages, and after a short break to soak up some sun in the still, clear air, the poor soulless bastard headed off again. On the 15th of January, the day all sledging parties were due back at the hut, he found himself in crevassed terrain, regularly breaking through snow bridges, but never falling in completely, managing to haul himself out easily enough. On the 16th, the sledge fell into open space behind him, and Mawson only just managed to hold his ground against the weight pulling him back toward the crevasse. After extricating the sledge, he cooked up a dog sinew soup, spiced up with a little pemmican, and reveled in this relative luxury. On the 17th, he fell into a crevasse to the end of his hauling line, the sledge only just halting at the edge of the abyss. Mawson thought he might just let himself slip from the harness and into the dark depths, but remembering the food still uneaten on the sledge, gave Living a red-hot go. Reaching up his hauling line to a knot gave him enough purchase to begin lifting himself back up. The climb out of the crevasse took two attempts, a further collapse in the crevasse lid, sending him back to the full 14-foot extent of the hauling line and prompting a second contemplation of the quitting option. But Mawson succeeded in hauling himself out on the second try, the effort draining him to the point he couldn't move for an hour once he was back at the surface. He contemplated pitching camp and enjoying a brief but well-fed stay in situ, but for the third time that day, his will to live trounced the suicidal ideation. He made a ladder of his alpine rope, which proved extremely handy in helping him climb out of subsequent crevasses, and carried on. On the 19th, he crossed the last of the Mertz Glacier, marking the end of the worst of the crevasse territory, and beginning the uphill climb toward the Madigan Nun attack. Mawson offloaded what weight could be shed, mostly in the form of worn-out clothing, and began this new leg of his journey, beginning to feel the first hints of optimism that he might actually make it back to the hut. On the 24th he made a good distance just sitting on the sledge with the wind at his back, filling the sail and pushing him along, 
but the worsening conditions this wind presaged forced a full day in the tent, where Mawson spent his time meticulously cataloguing and tending his various ailments, such stops becoming frequent as he once again approached Cape Denison and its near-constant and strong winds. On the 29th, in drifting snow and with just two pounds of food left in hand, Mawson came upon a cairn erected by Hurley, McLean and Hodgman. A precious bag of food topped the cairn. A note told Mawson that the ship was in at Cape Denison, that Amundsen reached the Pole, that Scott was staying another year in McMurdo Sound, and that Aladdin's cave lay 23 miles to the southeast, and, amazingly, that the search party trio turned back from their attempt to find their missing companions just six hours earlier. The food revived Mawson both in spirit and in body, and he anticipated reaching the hut in just a couple more days, but weather and the dearth of crampons, left behind after crossing the Mertz Glacier, put some extra crimps in the plan. Unable to gain purchase on the polished ice, Mawson rode the sledge under sail, but the poor pointing ability of this vessel carried him past Aladdin's cave. On the 30th, the prevailing wind prevented him taking a tack to the west, so Mawson cut up the theodolite box and used screws cannibalised from the sledge meter to turn the wood into a Zatz crampons. These broke up after just six miles of use, but they brought Mawson within striking distance of Aladdin's cave the marker denoting its position becoming visible on the 1st of February. He reached the cave to find, in addition to sledging rations, three oranges and a pineapple brought up from the ship, and after a year without freshies and his diet in his most recent months comprising pemmican and then dog, this must have been something a pleasant shock to his taste buds and a real gear shift to his digestion. He repaired his broken crampons and set out for the hut, but a blizzard drove him back, pinning him at Aladdin's cave for a week. On the 8th of February, with newly fashioned Mark III wooden crampons ready to go and an urgent need to get back among the living, Mawson prepared to head out into the storm regardless, but the wind dropped, giving him his window of opportunity. Two miles out, he saw the ship didn't lie in the offing, not surprising given the recent blow. Perhaps Captain Davis had the Aurora lying far offshore, awaiting an opportunity to come back to Cape Denison. Reaching the outlying rocks that helped mark Cape Denison as the snowless headland among a land of snow, figures near the hut spotted the lone sledger and began running uphill toward Mawson. Bickerton reached him first, struggling to identify the survivor, Mawson's face and frame having changed so much during his ordeal. In addition to Bickerton, Bage, Madigan, McLean and Hodgman had stayed behind when the ship departed earlier that day, holding out hope that the month-late sledges might yet turn up. Sidney Jeffries, a radio operator, had come off the ship to relay meteorological reports and any further news via the recently re-erected antenna to Hannam, now sailing north aboard the Aurora. Jeffries got word of Mawson's return out to the ship, and Davis headed back to Commonwealth Bay. Seeing the ship steaming along the ice face the following day, the Cape Denison crew began boxing up their books and instruments, but the 40-knot offshore wind prevented the ship approaching close. That evening, with the barometer still falling, the wind picked up to 60 knots, and the resulting chop put paid to any hope that the motor launch might yet come ashore. 
Already well beyond the last date Mawson stipulated, the Aurora should be on its way to collect the Western Party. Captain Davis decided that with those at Cape Denison in no immediate danger, he should attend to Frank Wilde and his charges. Mawson hoped the coal supply aboard would prove sufficient that Davis might turn once more for a daily land once the Western Party were seen to, but that wasn't the case. Jumping back in time a bit. In selecting the members of the Magnetic Pole team, Mawson felt tempted to leave Eric Webb at winter quarters. Webb's academic background and recent training at the prestigious Carnegie Institute gave him an aloof air in an otherwise close-knit team. In spite of his reservations about Webb's reaction to the isolating, cooperate-or-die realities of Antarctic sledging, Mawson did give the young magnetician a place in the Magnetic Pole Party, under the leadership of Lieutenant Robert Bage, with Frank Hurley making up the trio. Making their way towards maximum dippage on their dip circle, but held back by poor weather, the party had to start their return journey as they reached Bingo Food when the needle still stood at 89 degrees 43 minutes to the vertical. The trio barely made it back to Cape Denison. They'd pushed on so hard to reach the South Magnetic Pole that their food situation remained critical all the way back, and people in the know estimate that one more day of crook weather would have seen the end of them. While out on their foray, Bob Bage invented a beverage called Tanglefoot, with which they celebrated Christmas. Comprising raisins boiled in methylated spirits, it didn't blind or kill them, so I guess it can be called a success but damn me if some people won't take some risks for their alcohol intake. In case you're unfamiliar with the stuff, methylated spirits, or denatured alcohol, is ethanol into which methanol is added to make the fluid poisonous to prevent people imbibing that which they should be burning or using in industrial, medical or scientific processes. Other chemicals are added to make it taste and smell terrible, and some nations also require an emetic, such as Ipecac, to ensure anyone desperate enough for booze to knock some back immediately brings it forth again. Methylated spirits will send you blind and then shut down your organs, and in spite of the many recipes I've heard recited by fireside chemists, I don't see any ready means to distill pure ethanol from methylated spirits outside of a chem lab. Don't try Bage's recipe. Perhaps masturbate or practice apnea, just find some other way to alter your state of consciousness that doesn't involve wondering if you're going to see or breathe again. Bickerton got the air tractor up on some trial runs in the lead-up to the departure of the Western Party, achieving some respectable speeds and towing weights. But when the Western Party actually headed off, using the air tractor to tow their sledges, the engine seized after just 14 kilometres. The engine trying to operate in temperatures for which it was not designed, stopped so abruptly that the propeller shattered into a cloud of wooden splinters under the sudden deceleration. Their survey work was solid, and they found the first meteorite discovered in Antarctica, but Bickerton, who would later volunteer to stay on for a second winter in the hope of finding Mawson, Mertz and Ninnis, wrote of the journey as being enough to cure a man of a desire to poke his nose in the odd corners of the earth. While Mawson stipulated he wanted the second base at least 500 nautical miles further along the coast, 
Wilde's team sailed for another 1,300 nautical miles without finding another rocky prominence. It was during this phase of the expedition that Davis earned the name Gloomy among expeditioners for his taciturn manner and general pessimism in the face of sustained coastal disappointment and dense pack ice. But given his responsibilities for his ship and the people on it, I tend to side with Davis' precautionary pessimism. In unknown waters, adverse weather and the looming autumn, give me the pessimist skipper who keeps well off a lee shore. The phrase, there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old bold pilots, arose after the advent of powered flight, but I think it applies as much to mariners as it does to aviators, and since the word pilot has its origins among seafarers who could safely navigate a given coastline, I think it fitting that we should apply it to mariners retroactively. Certainly, Davis never lost a ship to any error of judgment, and that's a good thing. Born in Surrey, England, Davis ran away to sea at the age of 16 as a steward's boy. He apprenticed on a square-rigged clipper and took his second mate's exams in 1905 and his first mate's in 1906. It was a chance encounter with Shackleton that saw him aboard the Nimrod in 1907, and his contribution to Antarctic exploration is, while not widely recognised, a contribution not easily matched. Discussing him with the instructor and staffing manager who interviewed me for my new role in Antarctica, we agreed that of all the historical figures Antarctica throws up, Captain Davis is one of the most intriguing, and the one person from the heroic age whom we would both, if time weren't a problematic factor, like to sit down to a meal with. Digression. My former cabin mate on Geoscience Australia survey voyages, Cameron, sadly no longer with us following a sequence of unfortunate misadventures relating to getting his Antarctic and seafarers medicals preliminary to running multi-beam sonar surveys off Australia's Antarctic bases that landed him first in a wheelchair and then a coffin, once railed against a skipper who wouldn't take his ship close to the shore of an island we were tasked with mapping bathymetrically. It was no skin off my nose, as my samples always came after the characterisation, so I got excellent bathymetric data against which to contrast the biodiversity, but Cameron wanted to characterise as much of the coastal shelf as possible. With the ship's master unwilling to cross the 20 metre contour, Cameron's seafloor maps featured gaps he found frustrating to the point that he cursed the skipper, but the drive to ever seek shallower perspectives on such matters nearly cost us our multi-beam transducer on another voyage, when cross-swell conditions left our vessel with little water between us and a shoal we were trying to characterise. The shallower you map with a multi-beam system, the narrower the return becomes, and so the more time you need to spend swathing the area. We were nearly done with this particular shoal when the sea dropped out from beneath us. With expensive sonar equipment, you only get one chance to ground truth your work, so we asked the master to take us somewhere deeper, and while a transducer head sticks out far enough that we weren't likely to end up hold and sinking if we lost that particularly expensive piece of our undersides, it was nice to have more water under us for the rest of that survey. So I'm happy to have cautious, even gloomy skippers on my vessels. They might not be exciting, but that's sometimes a good thing, as you don't always want to live in interesting times. And Scott's expedition experiences are ripe with examples of what can come of holding an optimistic outlook on factors over which you have limited or no control. The pack increased in density as the Aurora sailed on. Davis wrote of his attempts to find a landing site. Had I set about the task of demolishing the cabin bulkhead with my own head, I should probably have had as much success as 
and hardly less of a headache then, we achieved in attempting to work our way through more than 50 miles of pack ice in the Aurora. As the Aurora transited west, shallowing soundings indicated land must lie nearby, but the icy cliffs didn't yield views of any rocky underlay. Three weeks after leaving Cape Denison and approaching the eastern margin of Drygalski's area of operations, where Mawson originally saw the potential Australian claim as ending, and with Davis exhausted by the vagaries of operating that far south that late in the season, Wilde eventually settled for establishing their base of operations on an ice shelf they named after Shackleton. In common with the Mertz Glacier, it took two days to sail around the ice tunnel. No rocky headland came into view, as was the case with the Mertz, but the ice tongue offered some shelter from the prevailing winds. Wild, Harrison and Hoadley climbed snow ramps with ice axes and alpine rope to survey the clifftops, finding the ice tongue surface heavily crevassed near where the ship lay, but smooth and apparently sound further south. With time running out to get the ship north before the ice trapped Davis and his crew for the winter, Wilde and his team unanimously decided to take the same risk as Amundsen and base their winter quarters on floating ice. 36 tonnes of equipment and stores were winched onto the ice tongue using another flying fox system and sledged a further half kilometre from the edge. On the 21st of February, a day shy of the anniversary of the Gauss being frozen in less than 200 miles further west, the Aurora departed for its transit back to Australia with a short coal supply and a fraught skipper. Wilde's party comprised Charles Harrison as biologist, Andrew Watson as geologist, Sidney Jones as the medical officer, Commander Morton Henry Moyes as meteorologist, Alexander Lorimer Kennedy as magnetician, Charles Hoadley as geologist, and George Dovers as cartographer. Wilde's winter quarters, a six metre by six metre building the Western Party came to call the Grottoes, and an igloo that Morton Moyes built to house the magnetic instruments away from any ferrous distractions, lay 27 kilometres from the actual coastline. Contrary to what I said in episode 49, this party did have radio equipment and erected their antenna. While the site was less prone to catastrophic catabatic winds, the first good blizzard knocked the antenna down and, having reached no one using the equipment, being so far from Cape Denison and Macquarie Island, Wilde's party made no attempt to re-erect it. Depot laying commenced in late August, and in the spring, Wilde led a three-man party to the east. On this foray, the running survey and the resulting maps by Alexander Kennedy were of such accuracy and precision that an aerial survey team from the USA felt the Australian warranted a mountain named after him, so they named a mountain after him. After trekking 120 nautical miles, the eastern party of the western party were stopped in their tracks by the Denman Glacier, a gnarly stretch of ice that a less experienced sledger than Wilde might have attempted to cross. At a site he named Possession Nunataks, Wilde raised the British and the Australian flags and claimed the area he named Queen Maryland in the name of King George V. Another party headed west, crossing the Helen Glacier and reaching the Gaussberg at Christmas. There, they supplemented the German cans laid by Drygalski's expedition with their own, depositing a record of their 200-mile trek from the Shackleton Glacier. No physical barrier prevented the Western Party of the Western Party travelling onward from there, 
but the German cans marked a historical circuit breaker to such a project. Even if the Australasian Antarctic expedition didn't see Drygalski's primacy in the area as especially important on the political front. Morton Moyes spent nine lonely weeks at the grottos, taking meteorological and magnetic measurements and keeping the home fires burning. One of the longest stints anyone spent alone on the continent to that time. The Western Party drank the wine given to them by Mawson, one of the three bottles entrusted to the expedition by John Buchanan, on Explorer's Day. After drinking their toasts, Harrison engraved the empty bottle with a picture of the Aurora and the names of the party before recorking it and throwing it in the sea. With no supplies for a second winter, it was with some relief that the crew spotted the Aurora sailing to collect them after its late stay at Cape Denison. Wilde's party left their ice tongue on the 23rd of February, 1913. Where the larger Cape Denison contingent saw several clashes of personality, the greatest being that between Mawson and New Zealand physician Leslie Wetter, who found it an affront that he should be expected to take part in menial tasks and cooking duties, the Western Party seems to have been a cohesive and amiable one. Frank Wilde, reporting to Mawson on their efforts, wrote... Should it ever be my lot to venture on a like expedition, I hope to have some, if not all, of the same party with me. And given that Wilde read some fairly scathing stuff about Marshall on the sledging journey that reached furthest south during the Nimrod expedition, a figure is not someone to throw around praise of that kind lightly. Back now in time to the Aurora on its departure from dropping off Wilde & Co. on the ice at the Western Winter Quarters. On top of his discomfort at leaving Wilde's party on floating ice, Davis had more stress in his immediate future as he helmed the Aurora away from the coast. With the cargo all unloaded and the water ballast tanks leaking, the ship sat high in the water, and to add to his problems, large numbers of icebergs on the move made progress slow as the cautious captain gauged every move, eager to not see the ship hemmed in and trapped for the winter. To make the most of what mass remained, the coal and stores were moved low in the ship, and the ashes from the engine were retained, wetted down, and stowed below. Gales did their best to turn the Aurora turtle, but Davis saw her safely to Hobart, arriving on March 12th, with just nine tonnes of coal remaining in the bunkers, which sounds like a lot until you map it out as cubic metres, and think about how many shovels full a cubic metre comprises. Davis found the Fram in port, and Amundsen sending out the news of his triumph at the Pole. Davis, like William Spears Bruce, felt disdain for the effort and plaudits focused on the Pole, and felt keen to get on with some science now that the stressful business of safely navigating the ice was over, but he dipped the Aurora's flag, and the crew gave a cheer for the safely returned Norwegians regardless. Davis wrote to Bruce expressing hopes that with the Pole revealed as a barren nowhere, People might turn their attention to solving more practical and scientific problems through their efforts, making him, in that sense, somewhat more of an optimist than even Captain Scott. The ship received minor repairs, a donkey engine for faster retrieval of anchors than the old school windlass could manage, and a full restocking before Davis left Hobart to undertake an oceanographic survey in the Southern Ocean hunting for the long-sought but never-to-be-found evidence of land bridges that Mawson and Edgeworth David, and many other prominent geologists of the time, felt sure must have connected Australia to Antarctica. 
I recently caught up with a colleague from my time at Geoscience Australia who studied geology at a time when the history of the continents as we understand it today formed the basis of heated debate and together we conjectured about what we currently take for granted that will be upended in similarly contentious paradigm shifts in the future. Here's S-waving at you, Dave. Using the Lucas sounding machine borrowed from William Spears Bruce, Davis sailed the aurora all over the sites deemed most likely to yield soundings, supportive of the land bridge hypothesis, but the ocean floor remained obstinately deep. The aurora sailed on to Macquarie Island, where the resupply eased tensions among the five expedition members ashore for the winter, who were well sick of one another, and especially sick of Ainsworth's leadership. With the unloading complete, Davis resumed soundings, but found that far from Macquarie Island comprising the emergent peak of a submerged mountain range, the island's mountain slopes continued to great depths in all directions. No historical land bridge there, either. Davis did find encouragement in a shallow sounding of 792 fathoms, or 1.5 kilometres, but rather than an oceanic ridge he could follow and use as supporting evidence for the land bridge idea, it turned out to be an isolated geo, part of the South Tasman Rise. While Davis returned to London to seek further funds for a second relief voyage, the Australasian Association for the Advancement of Science approached the Australian Government, by this point headed up by Prime Minister the Right Honourable Joseph Cook, cajoling a further £8,000 to help bring the rest of the expedition home. Two contraband diaries made by seamen during the Aurora's voyages during the Australasian Antarctic Expedition came to light long after the injunction against anyone other than the officers and scientists keeping journals no longer mattered. Able seaman Bert Lincoln kept his diary on the sly, figuring the ban an unfair encumbrance on those sailing before the mast, instituted in order that the official versions of the expedition events not be contradicted. Bert held the officers and scientists in some disdain, and didn't like the thought that they would crow about their achievements on getting home, when he felt the work was largely being done by the six sailors and the bosun. Bert's diary describes expedition life as experienced by those in the forecastle, and highlights day-to-day dramas that went unmentioned in expedition reports. That the second mate was washed off the bridge and nearly went overboard, Bert Lincoln only just managing to get a hand to the man and save his life at the very extremity of his strength and reach, doesn't warrant mention in broad picture accounts of the expedition, being overshadowed by the drama of Mawson's trek but was a big deal to the individuals involved. It's always fascinating to read diaries. They're written by the people who did the verbs, and usually shortly after the events described, and so carry layers of information, emotion and insight, often drained from more synthesised writing carried out much later. Fireman Stanley Taylor's diary, transcribed and published by his descendants in 2011, even includes photographs by the diarist. I can understand keeping a notebook and some ink hidden under your bunk in the forecastle, but even the pocket cameras of the era weren't easily used in a clandestine fashion, and Taylor's breach of the ruling that only Frank Hurley could take photograph speaks to me of a healthy disregard for the rules imposed for selfish financial reasons. His images aren't great, but they offer, as does the diary, another perspective on the events I've tried to describe for you, and the paperback edition his family released is one of the most coveted items on my bookshelves. I think an episode drawn from Stanley's diary might prove a good idea, as it brings home how sailors perceived and worked hard for the people that their efforts carried south.
jumping the time shark once more. At Cape Denison, Mawson spent several weeks recuperating from his ordeal. His legs swelled up painfully. His digestion, accustomed to the starvation diet for so long, took its time adapting to more and larger meals of more varied fare. Urinary problems and disturbed sleep added to his physical discomfort, but most worryingly, Mawson felt his experiences may have broken him psychologically. His diary, mostly comprising short entries at this point, as writing drained him physically and emotionally, reveal a man watching himself carefully for any increase in what he feared were signs of incipient madness. He found himself unsettled when alone, and took to following his companions around as they went about their duties, a shaky, gaunt ghost of the man who left the hut the previous spring. Gradually regaining his strength and resigned to a second winter at Cape Denison, he set himself to task writing up his work and the first draft of what would become the now famous memoir, The Home of the Blizzard. With the wireless finally working, Mawson, via wireless-operated Jeffreys, sent news to Paquita that he was alive, and to the king of his survey work across an area he proposed be named King George V land. The wireless could finally fulfil the role for which Mawson first incorporated it into his plans, as Jeffreys sent daily meteorological reports north, the content and immediacy of the information proving a boon to meteorological agencies in Australia. Jeffreys, the newcomer, didn't adapt well to life at Cape Denison. He got toasty quickly and by July became paranoid that people were talking about him. Paranoia can be grimly self-reinforcing and Jeffreys' increasingly erratic behaviour caused people to talk about him. Mawson's diary records minor digressions from the mean as passing irritations indicative of the well-documented but poorly understood polar depression. But gradually, the scale of Jeffrey's mania ramped up. He took a particular dislike to Madigan and began calling him out for a fight over things he thought had been said behind his back. Madigan declined the invitations, but Jeffreys gradually reached boiling point and began physically attacking the meteorologist. Dr. McLean recognised the pattern from his time working in a mental hospital, and the talk behind Jeffrey's back turned to what might be done to keep Madigan safe and the wireless transmissions accurate. By mid-August, Jeffreys began taking the crystal out of the radio equipment when he wasn't using it, precluding anyone else sending or receiving information. Mawson wrote of being at his wit's end trying to fathom how to deal with the situation, caught between not wanting to exacerbate Jeffreys' condition, but also not wanting that condition to jeopardise the safety of his team. The radio set, once just so much ballast, later a useful tool, now became a potential hazard, in that Jeffreys might call for a rescue ship ahead of the anticipated relief ship, thereby placing unnecessary risks on the heads of those on board. Everyone would rather be at home, but they were safe and well-stocked as they were, and the relief was just a matter of time. On the 3rd of September, Jeffreys began transmitting at a furious pace, and Bickerton, whom Mawson had encouraged to learn Morse code on the sly, couldn't make out the message. Jeffreys admitted that he'd advised Macquarie Island, using Mawson's name, that five of the men were dangerously out of hand, and that Mawson and Jeffreys might have to leave the hut to ensure their safety. Jeffreys was relieved of all duties. Bickerton got a message through to Macquarie, countering the previous high-speed screed, 
and Geoffrey spent the next five months in McQueen's care. On the final return to Australia, Jeffries was placed in a mental asylum in the country town of Ararat, from where he penned letters accusing his fellow overwinterers of conspiring to murder him, and Mawson of placing him under magnetic hypnosis. Anyone who's experienced correspondence with someone who supports homeopathy or thinks vaccines cause autism will be familiar with the mean of his output at this point. I've read some vague intimations that his mental health stabilised and he left the asylum, but can't find much concrete information about Sidney Jeffries beyond his correspondence from Ararat. In 2010, the Australian Antarctic Division named a glacier after him, which is spelt differently to, but pronounced the same as, another Jeffries glacier. Tasmanian composer Joe Bugden wrote a chamber opera, The Call of Aurora, recounting and exploring the relationship between Mawson and his radio operator, the work making its debut in Hobart in 2013, a century on from the events it recounts. Davis brought the Aurora back to Cape Denison in December 1913, and the seven men boarded up the hut and boarded their ride home. Mawson, ever keen to add scientific cachet to the expedition's output, convinced his loyal but thoroughly overworked friend and captain to head west once more to take soundings between Cape Denison and the Shackleton Glacier. On the 21st of January, two hours after Davis went off watch and got his head down, Mawson requested a sounding. Davis responded, Christ almighty, leave me alone. Look after your own business. I've reached that point with principal investigators, and I didn't even need three years to get there. Time at sea on a research vessel is expensive, and canny PIs take every advantage of every avenue down which they can squeeze some data, but there comes a point where people, already weary from long, hard yards, just want to get on their way home, and any request for additional opportunistic samples or measurements beyond the remit of the voyage begins to feel less like sound financial disbursement of research funding and more like someone taking the piss. The Aurora turned north shortly after this exchange. Homecomings. First wave. One of the most urgent quests for the Cape Denison residents returning to Australia in early 1913 was looking up the score of the Mikado to finally understand the Mondegreen lyric that plagued listeners during the long winter months. Frank Hurley began publishing the black and white and colour images his efforts with the cameras yielded, and a one-hour cut of the film footage he shot at Cape Denison began circulating, keeping the expedition at the forefront of Australian minds, while their national Antarctic champion weathered a second winter below the circle. Homecomings. Second wave. On his return to civilization, Mawson married Bikita, received a knighthood for his Antarctic efforts, and set about trying to publish his memoir. Douglas Freshfield, president of the Royal Geographic Society, replacing Lord Curzon, commended the Australian for efforts that yielded more scientific insight into our planet's past than any previous expedition. Not bad for a lad of 32 years but fundraising efforts by the expedition supporters still left an £8,000 gap, a debt that might have been nulled or quickly paid by subscription, had Mawson died as per Scott. But being alive, he was held to accounts payable. Vickers called for the money owing on the REP monoplane. Mawson pled poverty, and with military contracts falling in their lap as Britain girded its loins for war, Vickers wrote the debt off, 
but Mawson still needed to cajole funds out of anyone who might stump up a few tens or hundreds of pounds to help start getting reports published. Scott's tragedy, spun to mythic proportions, overshadowed Mawson's efforts, and the start of the First World War delayed the publication of his book for a year. Lecture tours returned less profit than anticipated. Mawson's influence in Australia, and particularly in Australia's interests in Antarctica, will receive further attention in future episodes of Ice Coffee, but it's worth mentioning here that his legacy isn't entirely squeaky clean. I've already noted that Mawson was driven by financial concerns, and I don't fault him for that. But others cast accusations of cannibalism at him, claiming he must have, or might have, or might have contemplated, eating off Xavier Mert's corpse, but no evidence that that's the case has come to light, and I don't care. If you're up against it and have food available in the form of your former companions, tuck in and live. And if no one's dead yet, but everyone soon will be if you don't get some food, draw straws to see who goes in the pot. Coincidentally, Tuck In and Live is the name of my meatloaf cover band. Another subset of people accused Mawson of working to ensure Mertz died before him so that Mawson could survive, but that's even more unsupported assumptions and assertions piling up for the sake of a particular unsupported conclusion. Such murderous action would certainly damn Mawson in my eyes, but I just don't see any reason to take the idea as more than pure supposition. If Mert's corpse turns up with big chunks out of it and bruises and scratches indicative of a struggle, then I'll take some additional ideas into consideration, but speculation doesn't cut it on its own. It's possible that a person could survive ordeals more than survived, and there's no need to add assumptions to the situation until the evidence warrants them. In 2007, Tim Jarvis recreated Mawson's trek as accurately as possible, following a diet and a path that approximated Mawson's 1913 ordeal. Jarvis found he was unable to extricate himself from the crevasse, and some people consider this evidence that Mawson must have been better fed than Jarvis, and therefore must have eaten some of Mertz. But I wonder if Jarvis could have gotten out of that crevasse, had his support team packed up their gear and left. Mawson intended that the survey work carried out along the Antarctic coast south of Australia should form the basis of a territorial claim. In spite of his not receiving official imprimatur on that front, that ambition was eventually realised to the extent that anyone does hold a claim on the continent, with the 6,400 kilometres of terrain traversed by his parties or surveyed by the Aurora, forming the coastal margin of Australia's interest in the south, abutting Victoria land in the east interrupted by the French claim in a daily land, and extending westward to Kaiser Wilhelm land. The expedition mapped similarities between the geology of the coast of Antarctica and the southern coast of Australia, and brought to light the first signs that Antarctica could yield precious metals, small quantities of gold and silver being found in some of the rock specimens. Australasian Antarctic Expedition Magnetic Measurements when cross-referenced with those from the British Antarctic Expedition Mark III, showed the average position of the South Magnetic Pole lay about 80 nautical miles north of the point reached by David, Mawson and Mackay. Beige, Webb and Hurley didn't reach the exact point estimated as the mean position either, missing it by about 65 nautical miles. The geological and biological specimens, meteorological, magnetic and auroral observations and measurements, 
formed the basis of many scientific publications, Australasian Antarctic Expedition data still informing articles published as late as 1947. The 22 volumes, comprising 89 scientific reports, have since helped buttress the Australian association with the region. Familiarity breeds international recognition of territorial rights, so the idea goes. In 1937, one of the bottles given to Mawson by John Buchanan in 1911 washed up on a beach near Tuggera, New South Wales. It was the one entrusted to Frank Wilde and the Western Party, and still showed Harrison's engraving of the ship, and carried the names of the Western Party on its sides. Articles from Mawson's epic, tragic trek, returned to Australia and now reside in the South Australian Museum. Among a cooker, some clothing, a mounted husky, and the large first aid medicine chest, it's the cut-down sledge, his ad hoc crampons and the spoon that Xavier Mertz crafted for him that constitute the most evocative reminders of what the high latitudes can demand of and impose on a person. I'll leave some final words on Mawson and Davis to Frank Hurley, whom I think captured their characters well when he wrote, Davis led on sea and Mawson on land. Both possessed an inflexible spirit in danger and a rare ability to inspire and encourage. They were equally human and generous and thought of their men first.